0: In here from the scriptures before we get to our text but we'll begin here in 1 Kings 13 verse 33 so this afternoon after uh, after a good refreshing dinner and nap uh, Linda asks So, what are you preaching on tonight? And I said, well, it'll be a surprise, but we'll be in the Old Testament. I didn't tell you what it was exactly, did I? Okay. So, we're going to begin tonight with a study on uh, the life of Elijah. And we'll look at this interesting uh, biblical figure. He's a foremost prophet uh, in the Old Testament. If you have any doubts about that, just look in the New Testament. He's mentioned, I think, 29 times in the New Testament, reference to Elijah the prophet. So we're going to look at his life and times. We'll begin here in 1 Kings 13, uh, verse 33. The the Old Testament or the, the admonition in the Pentateuch from the book of Deuteronomy was that the children of Israel should never give themselves to idolatry. And that if they ever would give themselves to idolatry, that there would be severe consequences uh, for their actions. And what we're going to trace right now is their descent under the leadership of wicked kings into idolatry. And that's That's as as bad as it gets, but there are even more ramifications that come from the worship of false gods. That kind of worship, the worship of idols, manifests in different ways on earth. There are consequences of that worship, of forsaking the one true living God and then looking to idols, the work of man's hands. So for, for approximately 100 years, uh, the children of Israel lived in a unified kingdom under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. Toward the end of Solomon's reign, there was civil war breaking out, and eventually the kingdoms Divided. And when you're reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament especially, you come across a, a, a part where you've got two kings ruling simultaneously. You've got to keep in mind there were two kingdoms. So there's a kingdom of uh, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah, which was, or Judea, in the south. So we're looking primarily tonight at the northern Kingdom. Now, from the time of the division after Solomon's reign, it was approximately 200 years of idolatry until the Syrians invaded in 722 and took them captive. So, 722 BC, uh, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, find themselves under the authority of a foreign power. This again is God's judgment on the people for their idolatry. So Jeroboam is the first king of the Northern kingdom. Oh, I should say, you're wondering what happened in the South? Well, it would be another hundred years. It was approximately 300 years from the division that occurred after the reign of Solomon until their Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. So uh, for either kingdom, not good, but there was a reason why. And a lot of that is their idolatrous practices under wicked kings, evil kings. So we'll trace this and we're looking primarily at the Northern kingdom right now and we're looking at their first king, Jeroboam. So he's getting things started, uh, and he's getting them off to a problematic start. You know, with any uh, first king, you would like somebody to set the tone. That's really important. Amen? It's really important to set the tone, Uh, uh, a lifestyle, a way of life, a practice of... Uh, one, you know, worshiping one, the one true God, but Jeroboam did not do this. Let's look at First Kings 13 and verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. Now, these high places are high places dedicated to the worship of idols. And this is what we find. Jeroboam, there it is. He's the first king. He didn't return from his evil way. So he's an evil king. He's got a heart that is not true to God. But again, the Bible says, he made priests of the high places. So he is extending his authority Slash his own personal weakness and wickedness through the priests. And these are priests of the high places. That's plural. It's more than one. So there's more than one priest. There's these high places that they preside over. And he did this. He made these priests from among all the people. And then it's any. Any who would. He ordained to be priests of the high places. So it didn't matter who it was, it didn't matter what tribe they were from, and we know going back, God said in the one true worship of the the Lord God, there would be priests, but they would be from the tribe of Levi. God was uh, very detailed, he was very specific about who could be a priest to worship the one true God. Well. They're an idolatrous uh, nation at this point. Jeroboam is leading them down this path of idolatry. And he just says, whosoever will can be a priest. And whoever it was, you can be a priest and preside over a high place. And they would give themselves to the practices of uh, these, uh, this uh, worship of idols. Well, let's, uh, let's continue on. We'll go to 1 Kings 14. And uh, we'll track this um, dynasty, which was not a dynasty. I always, always would uh, in teaching world history uh, years ago. Boy, by now, um, I would always, uh, you know, tell the, the the kids. I'd say, listen, you know, anytime you have a dy- dynasty, all it means is they're going to die nasty. So I don't know where that came from, but anyway, it worked. They liked it, and uh, and it's really true. And you'll see it here. Uh, they they forsake God, and then you know you would think that okay, it's all about them, right? They're wanting to do their own thing. They're perpetuating their own practice. It always comes around to them. It never works out good for these kings. Never. The northern kingdom had 19 kings from this time to the Assyrian invasion. All of them wicked. None of them have a good story as far as a happy ending, so to speak. So verse 20 of chapter 14 there in First Kings, the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So we go over to chapter 15, verse 25, and we'll read down. We've just got some selected passages. We could read more, but we we just want to hit the high points and continue on. Verse 25 of 1 Kings 15. Now, Nadab, so he was the successor to Jeroboam. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel... Israel, what does that say to us? That's the northern kingdom, okay? In the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. Well, I wonder what happened during those two years. Well, verse 26 he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah. See, we have these two kings here. Um, we have Nadab, we have Asa and Baasha is, says in verse 28 that he killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah and reigned in his place. It came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. It always comes back. So you, here you have this wicked king, and what's he doing? He's killing another wicked king, and he's taking care of his whole house, which was a practice back then. If a king rose to power, he would generally try to eliminate everybody in the previous house. So in the household of Jeroboam. And he did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah, the Shalonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now I want to make a note here before we, before we proceed. And it's, it's an important note. I think the way this reads and what it communicates to us is really important. Notice in verse 30, Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, okay? So he's a sinner, okay? He's evil in his own heart. He's idolatrous in his practice, but it doesn't stop there. And here's the responsibility of a leader, a king in this case, look at this, and which he made Israel sin. So he used his kingly authority to bring his own evil on the people of Israel. And it's really important to to make that distinction of a leader, a king, who's using his authority to cause others to sin, to cause others to follow his own idolatrous practices and he is he is ultimately responsible. Everybody's responsible for themselves, but the king. It started with him. It goes back to Psalm One. What about what's a, who's a sinner? Well, those that walk, those that walk in the path of the unrighteous. What do they do? They go along to get along. But then you have some that are the talkers, and then you have some that are the sitters. Those who have sat down in their sin and they're preaching their own sin to others. There are levels to this people that use their influence to get others to sin and to buy into their faulty perspectives and their faulty worldviews and their idolatrous practices. That is an abomination in the sight of God, And, and the Bible shows that. So we go down to chapter 16 and verse 6. And Baasha, I wonder what happened to Baasha. He sounds like bad, bad Leroy Brown, doesn't he? I mean, he just went after the previous king, Nadab, struck him down, killed the whole house. What happens to Baasha? Well, Baasha slept with his fathers. That's what happened to him. And he was buried in Terzah, and Elah, his son, became king in his place. I wonder how it will turn out for Elah, his son. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Baasha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Provoking who to anger? Provoking the Lord to anger. Notice, The Bible says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We have that time after time after time. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Nothing goes beyond the notice of our God. Our God sees the evil. He sees the evil hearts of the kings. He sees the evil that is perpetuated through their reign. Provoking him to anger with the works or the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam. And because he struck it. We'll keep reading. In the 26th year of Asa. So there's the reference again to the southern kingdom. You have a little contrast there. 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. They're putting it. The author is putting it in time. Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel at Terza. I think that's where... Uh, Ba'asha was buried. And he reigned how many years? Two years. His servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. So Zimri, Zimri is supposedly on his team. On whose team? On Elos' team. He's the commander of half his chariots and he conspired against him. Notice, it never works out for these guys. <laughs> I mean, they can live in their evil. They will perpetuate their evil. They have past history and they know that history. But they are dead set on their idolatry, on their evil practices. And I don't think, yes, I've said it. It never works out for them. Never Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Terzah drinking himself drunk in the house of Arzah, who was over the household at Terzah. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. And it came about when he became king, as soon as he sat on the throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave a single male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. So these guys, all it's, it's like they're on the same team, they're not on the same team. <laughs> I mean, they're together until they start killing each other. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha through Jehu the prophet for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Eli's son, which they sinned in which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And over to verse 21, same chapter. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. So now we have a divided not only a divided kingdom, but it's now dividing again. The people of Israel divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, and Tibni died, and Omri became king. I wonder what happens with Omri. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. It's interesting. Asa's got this long reign and these guys are a revolving door of kings in the northern kingdom. So there's more stability in the south. And I think there's more to be said for the reign of King Asa. Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Terzah. He bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Here we go. What about Omri? Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. I mean, it doesn't even. It doesn't get better. It just gets worse. They're in a a death spiral. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Notice how long this provocation was taking place. We've read about it for a while. How long will they provoke the Lord God? All this sin is being done in the Lord God's sight and he is being provoked by their sin. Verse 28, so Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Here we go. And Ahab, his son, became king in his place. Verse 31 through 33 and we're almost there. We are right there. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That he married Jezebel. We'll stop right there. Now, in just our short reading together, this is the first king that we have read married And who he married? So that's significant. That just alarm bells go off. Why is this? Well, we'll we'll get to that. Came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel. And I mean, that's like. It was like it was a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, and you and I know it wasn't a trivial thing, but to make matters worse, he married Jezebel, the daughter of F Baal or Baal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal, Baal, and worshipped him. So what did he do? He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, this sets the scene. This gives you, uh, catches us up on the history of these, of the northern kingdom and these kings, one after the other, did evil in the sight of God. And we get up here to, to Ahab, and we find out that he was, we find out information that we haven't been given concerning other kings. And that was not only did he practice evil, that he did evil in the sight of God but that he married Jezebel. And she is the daughter of Ethbaal, And this is where the God so-called Baal or Baal becomes the center of attention. Uh, the God of fertility, uh, the God of the seasons, the God of the rain. And so the people are directed to this false God and he is, in their minds, the one who presides over the produce or the productiveness of the land. And this is the one that they're looking to, this Baal. And they build him a house in Samaria. And then Ahab went further than that and made the, the Asherah, the a wooden symbol of a female deity. And thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll read our text there in chapter 17, verse 1. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for the communion that we shared this morning. Thank you for the songs that we've sung in praise to you. God, we pray that you would continue to grow our hearts to maturity in you, that our lives would reflect you in every way and ever-increasing ways, that we would be strong in our testimony of you, and, Lord, that your blessing would be upon your people. Protect us. Uh, With the truth, we'll give you all the praise and glory, for it's in Jesus' name we ask, amen and amen. So, all this is going on year after year after year after year. We've got some, I think, 60 years that we have covered here. And we get to verse 1 of chapter 17, now Elijah the Tishbite. What's going on? We've had king after evil king after evil king. They rise, they fall, they come, they go, they provoke the Lord with their sin and their evil practices. They influence the nation, the kingdom that they preside over. And something different takes place During the reign of Ahab. And that something different is Elijah the Tishbite. The Bible says, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab. So evidently he has a a hearing with the king. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Before whom I stand. Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Well, this is our text tonight. This is the word of the Lord to us. And we uh, lay our eyes on this text and we see this, this man, this Elijah. Uh, so what do we know about Elijah? Let's look at his name first. His name. His name is a sermon. His name is a beautiful name. So it's a combination of El. Uh, in the Bible, you have Elohim. So L El is a name for God. And then Yah, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's a name for God. That's a covenant name for God. In fact, all through this, when you read that the Lord God was provoked, ding, 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 the Lord God, the Lord God. Oh, that's the covenant Lord God. That's the God who wants a personal relationship with you. In other words, all that idolatry that was taking place, that was personal to God that sent a message to the Lord. The people were breaking that relationship that God wanted with them. He is the Lord God. He wants a relationship with his people. We first read about that in Genesis 2. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. We read about it here. The Lord God cares about people. He wants a relationship with folks. He wants their worship. He wants their hearts. He wants their lives, he wants them to walk before him in truth. But time and time and time again, the kings and the people around them walked in their own evil practices of idolatry. And so we have El, God, Yah, Lord, and that little I right in the middle That little I in the Hebrew would mean my. It's a personal pronoun, my. So this is my Lord God. Elijah's name is my Lord God. He is my Lord God. Not Baal, not the Asherah, not these uh, other idols of the times. He was not there to do homage to the king, Ahab. The one true God, the one true Lord God is his God. That tells us a lot right there. So what kind of culture is he in? It's a wicked culture. And you know what? They've been wicked for a long time. They don't know a whole lot else. And all of a sudden on the scene, God raises up this man to bring God. The Lord God, honor and glory and praise. And so here he is, and he's on the scene. I wonder, uh, well, that's his name. And then where he's from, right there, the Tishbite. Anybody know where Tishba is? (laughs) I'm not even going to ask you to look look at your map. You probably have a map in your Bible. I looked in my Bible. I couldn't find Tishba. Tishba is an obscure place, a tiny little place. I don't, I mean, there's all kinds of discussion about where that is and where, you know, the, the, he's on the east side of the Jordan over in the Transjordan. I mean, he's out there. Tishba, it's not a major place. Not a major place anybody really knows about other than, you know what, Elijah came from there. But notice what the Bible says. It says he was of the settlers of Gilead. Now, I found this interesting. Elijah is a foreigner. He's a foreigner. He's not from there at all. But God's going to raise him up. God put him there, and he's going to speak for God. I couldn't help but think of First Peter and all of us foreigners here on this planet that we're here to speak for God. We're here to point to the Lord and remind people that there's a Lord God that we are all accountable to and that it's time to stand against the nonsense of a culture that would go against the Bible, that would go against truth, that would go against our God, that would shake their fists in the face of God and say, we'll do it our way. So... Elijah the Tishbite, He's is uh, one of the settlers of Gilead. And if you look on your map, there's like a Jabesh Gilead, and there's another Gilead, and there's Gileads all over the place. So, you know, it's anybody's guess on that, but he was a real man. And God brought him on the scene at a time of absolute, I mean, it's like evil couldn't get worse. It was just the worst time, the darkest time. We throw the word unprecedented around, but it was an unprecedented time for them, years of evil and, and a, a downward spiral of, of religion and society and everything in between. And here's one man, Elijah, the Tishbite, was of the settlers of Gilead. And he said to Ahab, there he is. So I wonder if he's going to try to broker a deal. Will God raise him up to break a, you know, kind of broker a deal with Ahab? Kind of negotiate something here? Let's make a deal, right? Is that the way God works? No, it's not. God doesn't make deals. God sends his word. That's what God does. And we see that. It's so beautiful here. It's one sentence or one verse here. Uh, He is before King Ahab. And we're thinking that Elijah came from a very uh, small place, a very obscure place, that he was used to solitude. He wasn't running into kings every day in Tishba. But here he's before a king. I wonder what he did. Will he cower in fear? Will he? What will he do? Well, he's going to do what God tells him to do is what he's going to do. And he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely, that's a big word there, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except my, by my word. Um, so Elijah is there to bring a message to King Ahab. And the message is that uh, the waterworks are dried up. I mean, I've always, you know, the part about the rain really stands out. No rain for three years. But he says there's not going to be dew either. That's serious. That's serious. No dew? No rain for three years. And he says, This is by my word. Uh, the word of Elijah, the word that God had given Elijah. And he declares this. He's not asking questions. He's not looking for a deal, and there is really no reprieve. There's no like there's no option. He just declares it. And if there's no water, then you're your crops die, and if there's no water, your, 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 your animals die. And if there's no water, then ultimately everything dries up and, and there's death. And all of this was a consequence of the evil that we see. So in closing, a couple things, and I, I would like to relate it to, I would like us to appreciate how God works what he does, that he's, he had his, his person there, his man, his prophet. He had given this prophet his word. And that without blinking, so to speak, Elijah stood before Ahab. As one man, he's outnumbered. You ever felt that way? You ever felt outnumbered? Like, you know, we used to say, uh, deep water, high mountains, many Indians. We're outnumbered, but you know what? With the Lord, the Lord in one is really a majority. I mean, who had leverage here? Was it Ahab and all his history? Oh, and his and his uh, illustrious wife Jezebel? Did they have the leverage? No, no. The world never has its has leverage over the believer. Uh, The world may have their idolatry and they may have their certain practices, but God's word abides forever. And so Elijah is willing to stand alone, even though he's outnumbered. He's willing to receive the word of God. He's willing to declare the word of God. And I love his perspective on the Lord. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives let us never forget, and we can go back to Psalm 115, but man's idols are man's idols. They don't do anything. They have no power except what man would give them. We serve the living God. He is alive. He has given us a living hope. He has given us all kinds of provision. He's given us spiritual resources, his word, his spirit, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given us opportunities to praise him and to grow in the likeness of Jesus. This is our living God. He's active in our lives. Let us worship him in spirit and truth. Let us forsake the idols of the world. Let's not even uh, glance at those idols of the world. Let's not even entertain those idols of this world. But let's give our attention to God as Elijah did in this text. And let's stand before him. He says, before whom I stand, meaning it is God that matters. It's, it's, it's what God thinks about us and our lives before him that really matter. It is not about what Kings say of us. It's not about what the rank and file say of us. It is about what God thinks about us and what God, the Lord God says about his people. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time tonight. We thank you for uh, this, uh, well, this account of Elijah. And I pray God, you would really use this to, to work in us and to firm our commitment to you in the midst of a hostile world. Lord, that we would be willing to take your word, to declare your word, to speak your word, to share Jesus with others that we would do this knowing you are the living God and we stand before you. We stand before you now, before your face, we stand. And one day we will stand before you again. So Lord, help us, encourage us tonight and may your blessing be on us this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.